Father, it's you we worship. You alone deserve glory, honor, and praise. You alone are King. You are Lord. You are God. So it's to you that we cry out and ask that you would hear us, Lord, and grant our requests that we would be transformed by the preaching of your word, that you would show us Christ, that you would move us to greater faithfulness and obedience and love. Help us, Lord, for your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty. So I have one question already sent to me, and then we will see what the Lord does from there. Alright, so here's the first question. Scripture calls us to take an active role in our progressive sanctification by striving to follow the perfect example displayed by the Lord Jesus. But... While Jesus is by and large shown to be gentle, meek, and lowly in his behavior, he does not always behave that way. Many of the times that he confronted the hypocritical Pharisees, he spoke harshly to them. In the temple, before he told the man with the withered hand to extend his hand, we are told that Jesus looked around with anger. So that's Mark 3, uh, Verse 3 through 6, here's the uh, passage. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Continuing with the question, Jesus even used physical violence when he made a whip and whipped people as he cleared the temple of money changers. Of course, none of those words or actions were sinful. They were all pure and holy words and actions. So here's the therefore. So then, as we seek to emulate and follow Jesus, are there times when it is appropriate for us to speak harshly to hypocrites be righteously angry, or even use violence in a holy, righteous way. Good, right? As believers, we desire and aim, strive, follow Christ in His example. Does that include when Jesus spoke harshly to hypocrites, looked with anger at the hardness of hearts, and made whips to clear temples that had become dens of robbers rather than a house of prayer. So, first, so what is this question about? In a sense, it's about um, anger and the, res- and the reactions that anger produces in us um, and the example of Christ. So, since we're going to be talking about anger, I thought it would be good to maybe give some mm, foundation. Clearly, we know that 
All anger is not bad. We see Jesus. He looks with anger. Um, Zeal for your house consumes me. was a fulfillment of that prophetic word in where Jesus made that whip and cleared the temple. So, anger is obviously not always wrong. But before we start to talk about how we're able to be angry, um, I was just overwhelmed with the responsibility to give the warnings in Scripture about anger. And what does it say? And I think it's even instructive. It's helpful um, to look at these because I think they tell us something directly to the question. Um, Proverbs... I have one, two, three, four, five Proverbs here, all dealing with anger. And then what Jesus said in Matthew 5 from the Sermon on the Mount. The Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. I want you to notice that. Slow to anger is not the same as never angry, right? In fact, Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger. It's not that he doesn't get angry. He's slow to anger. And I believe there is something there directing us toward the answer to the question. Proverbs fifteen eighteen: a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, Here's again, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes his city. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And then lastly, Proverbs 22, 24, and 25, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So these verses are telling us being slow to anger is righteous. Having control of your spirit is righteous, it's good, it's wise, has great understanding, and ultimately, you are imitating the Lord God who is slow to anger. So, that is important, right? Anger is not just called outright evil, wrong, never do it. You need to be slow to it. Let me get to Matthew 5, where Jesus has begun to preach the Sermon on the Mount. He's gone through the Beatitudes, if you will. Well, he says this, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, now the King James would add, without cause, because of the context, because of what we just read, because of what we see in the Lord himself showing anger, being angry. We can't say angry 
always in every circumstance is wrong. So that's why they added without cause, without a just cause, without a righteous cause. It was the uh, idea behind the, um, the translators there in the King James. But the original doesn't have that. It doesn't have that, and that's why the ESV didn't put that. But it's in the context and it's in the implication. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Again, if that means just angry, now we have Jesus liable to judgment. We can't have that. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Strong rebuke against murder in the heart. Anger that is unrighteous. Anger that begins with a feeling, um, moves to, um, what is the, rakah, right? The, um, the expression of that anger, and then it is even given to thoughtful, um, careful words to express insult and curses. Uh, but it all begins in the heart, but it's murder. So those are warnings uh, against being quick to anger, being given to anger, and the anger that is ultimately murder and leads to eternal destruction. But the Bible gives us boundaries. It gives us a, a fence. Sometimes children, you're told, you can play, at least I remember growing up, like you can play, but you can't go further than that lampstand, or you can't go further than that house. There was a, a boundary. You could, anything you want within this area. And that's what we have when it comes to anger. We're given boundaries. Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. So that's a command. Be angry. Jesus showed anger. Jesus expressed that anger in words and in actions. And none of his words, actions, or emotions were sinful. Christian, you are commanded to be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What do you think? Is that do not let the sun go down on your righteous anger or your sinful anger? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Mm. Could it mean both? If you're righteously angry, Shouldn't that drive you to some behavior? Shouldn't you deal with that immediately and not let it linger because it could perhaps turn into unrighteous anger? James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Here it is again, slow to anger. 
For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So there it seems to tell us if you are quickly angered, that resembles the anger of man. Slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, where do we hear anything about the anger of man? We're just being told to be slow to anger. And then there's a direct connection to the anger of man, which taking everything we looked at with God being slow to anger, the warnings in Proverbs to be slow to anger, being quick-tempered, being hasty to anger, being given to anger, that is, in the true Proverbs, put under the category of sin. So if you're quickly angered, if you're given into anger very quickly, it does seem to indicate that that is not the anger of God, not a righteous anger, but an anger of man. And then lastly, 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, all of that, um, long way around, for foundation. There are warnings. So I'm going to tell you to be angry, to give in to your anger, to talk angry, and to do angry things. That's basically what I'm about to do. Therefore, I wanted to make sure to say, you need to be careful with this, because the Bible repeatedly, uh, if you do a Bible hub, blue letter Bible, one of those things, and just put in anger, angry, Old Testament, you get hundreds of um, results. Put it in the New Testament, it's amazing how much that shrinks. And most of the anger, angry in the Old Testament is towards anger. Or a warning about anger. So there is that necessary thing. Okay, so following the example of Christ, when are we to be angry? What did he get angry about? Well, let's look at the question again. What was it that he got angry about? Well, the Pharisees, when he spoke to them, there were many times when he spoke harshly to them. Can anybody think of any examples? Whitewashed tombs. Yeah. Brood of vipers. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He said that after eat. I mean, this was... This could have been a song. There's the refrain. There's the chorus. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. 
John the Baptist did the same thing, right? He had the same kind of language. So, is that something that we are supposed to do? Well, yes. There are times for us to speak and rebuke sharply. When? Well, we see this is a pastoral responsibility. Titus 1.7, for an overseer, that is a bishop, a pastor, an elder, same office, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or, here it is, quick-tempered. Something about the quickness of anger is preached against over and over, and the slowness of anger is being hailed as righteous and virtuous and godly. Not quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Four, there are many who are insubordinate. So this is not talking about the the person who comes into the church who has struggles and they're confused and they're trying to figure out things and maybe they came from a background, they were oneness Pentecostal, but God saved them and now the issue of the Trinity is confusing to them and they have genuine questions or they um, may be reading some things, they've been exposed to some things. They're really battling and struggling, but they're teachable. They want to know. They want to learn. And that doesn't mean that they're not going to go back and forth with you. Being teachable doesn't mean you just sit there and listen. It it also means that you say, but what about this? Not to just get a a, a reaction out of somebody or to try to, you know, cause a fight, but you really have questions. That's not where you start rebuking sharply. That's where, I believe, um, the words to Timothy about God's servant must be kind to everyone, even the the opposition. So we're going to go out, Lord willing, and talk to people about Christ and urge them to repent. And there's our our opposition. There's our opponent. They're they're enemies of the cross and enemy of God and his people. And so we are going back and forth with them. But we're to be kind, we're to be gentle, we're to be patient, enduring, teaching, all of that. This is a different category when you get a teacher. When you have someone who stands up and says, this is the way to go. When you have people who are trying to make disciples and like the Pharisees, this is the same category. They were um, blocking the way of salvation, not entering it themselves, but keeping others out as well. They were presenting God in a way that is inaccurate. They knew that they were false. Uh, They knew that they were liars. Jesus came up to them, asked them a question. um, They went back and said, well, if we say this, then he'll say that. And if we say this, then the crowds will say this. And so they come up and say, we don't know. They were liars. They did know. They knew he was from God. They wanted to maintain their power. They wanted, they were robbers of widows' houses. And therefore, Jesus had strong words for them. So when we look at, when we look at these um, elders who are given the instruction right after being told to not be quick-tempered, to be gentle, then one of the responsibilities is to rebuke those who contradict it. Why? Because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
That may not be our party today. The circumcision party, maybe if we were over in Israel, that's one thing. But where we live, who are the especially? Um, liberals? Secularists? Abortionists? Who are they? And your context may look different than in mine. Who are them? Tell, telling you all about back in Texarkana, hyper-Calvinists. Those are the ones in that area who are disrupting and they need to be rebuked because they contradict the sound doctrine. They must be silenced. A strong language. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Oh, Paul, you're such a racist. All of them? Gracious. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So, what do we see? We see not only are there times, but there's a responsibility and a commandment that this must be done by shepherds. Now, are shepherds an example to the flock? Therefore, is this only for shepherds to do? Or are there times in your life when there are people who contradict the gospel, who preach a false Jesus, who are upsetting whole families, they are not standing on the truth, but they are pointing people away from the truth, and you have sought to approach them with a slowness to anger and plead with them to preach truth and repent of this, but they will not, and they demand to be left alone to continue to preach this error, and you have access, then how do you deal with the wolf? You don't pet a wolf. That's what the rod is for. 2 Corinthians 13.10, sorry. Um, you see Paul's... Hearing that the microphone is scratchy, I think I shall not put that in my pocket. Thank you. 2 Corinthians 13.10 Paul says, for this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So we see that there is a desire in the believer to not have to go there. I don't want to have to be sharp in my rebuke. I don't want to have to be strong in my language. I would rather be gentle. I would rather be soft. I would rather not have to pull out the big guns, if you will. And that should be our heart. I'd rather not do this. I'd rather be slow to getting there. But that language of being slow to anger is the idea of a, a long wick. Think of a, a candle wick before it you know, or dynamite would be more probably appropriate, 
the wick is long and it takes a long time before the fuse gets to the dynamite, the uh, explosion and gunpowder. And that is how we should be. There should have a long suffering before we get to that point. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we see Him constantly confronted with error and sin all over the place. It's day after day, moment after moment, every conversation, every person He met was a sinner. Every time He would talk to these people, pour out His love, heal, and look how they constantly rejected Christ to the point where He's weeping over them. And then we get to that point at the end of his ministry where he clears the temple. He does it twice, but you get the point. Jesus was long-suffering before we see this anger. What about the way we look? Jesus looked around at them with anger. Um, Job. Job had how many friends? Three. Were there only three? It was four. We forget about the fourth, right? But you're right. There were three friends who were the primary ones in the book of Job. And there was another. And he was a younger guy. Uh, anybody know his name? It starts with an E. Uh, Elihu. It's good, though. He's one of them. Um, listen to what it says in Job 32, verse 1 giving examples of righteous people being angry as Jesus was and for the reasons that Jesus was. And as you examine your own heart, are you quick to anger or slow to anger? And are these the things that make you angry? So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, what does it say? Burned with anger. Burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job. Got to love the explanation given. Because he justified himself rather than God. Does that make you burn with anger? He burned with anger at, also at Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. If you want to see an example of being slow to anger, look at Elihu. He sat there and listened after conversation, after conversation, this explanation, this reasoning, he sat there in silence through the whole thing. And he's like, okay, this time someone's going to say something. Nope. This, no. And he sat there and he burned and burned. And when no one was able to speak, no one was able to give a response. No one was able to justify God and give a reason to this man that was biblical His anger came out. But if you read what he said, it wasn't insults and screaming and yelling. It was truth. It's righteous and good to feel anger when things are not done as they should be. But what does it drive you to? And that would be where we're quickly moving. Um, Another example would be 2 Corinthians 7, 10. This is... Uh, Paul 
after he wrote 1 Corinthians, where he gave some very strong language and commands of what to do, especially in 1 Corinthians 5, about the man who was in a sinful relationship with his father's wife. And Paul said, put that man out the next time you gather together in the name of the Lord. Well, they did it. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says this, as he's commending them. And I want you to pay attention to the list of what he commends. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What, what word is there? Indignation. You might have another word. You might have anything else beside the ESV. How about this? What does indignation mean? You ever heard of righteous indignation? It means anger. What Paul says this godly grief produced in you something, but it also produced in you an eagerness to clear yourselves. There was feeling and action. And Paul says in praise, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. The way that they handled it included indignation. And Paul said that was good. It was good that you were angry. It was good that you felt angry because God was angry. His name was being insulted. We should be angry at sin. We should be angry when we see hard hearts. We should be angry when we see false religion. We should be angry when we hear false gospels. We should be angry when we see babies murdered and people trafficked. We should be angry when we see genuine racism not imagined. We should be angry when we see injustice and wickedness in this world. We should be angry. I think perhaps as Christians we're not angry enough. But what does our anger move us to? Well... The question was about physical violence. Is there ever a time for that? And again, the Bible would say yes. Um, Proverbs 20, verse 2 says, The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Uh, that is basically Romans 13, 1, right? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 
there is a time for violence. And this violence is because of wickedness. And it is in the hands of the governing authorities who bear the sword. But what about you as an individual? Do you ever have the right to bear the sword? Or the 38? <laughs> well, Luke 22 gives us, I think, some help there. Luke 22, 35. I know this is a bit of a long answer, but it's a very involved question, and I want to make sure that people don't go out hitting one another. <laughs> Not that y'all would, of course. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So Jesus says, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak to buy one. We see immediately the wrong usage of the sword just a few verses down. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? See, here's the question. All right, you told us to... Sell stuff to buy a sword? We got two right now. Shall we strike with the sword? Is this the time to use the uh, liberty of owning weapons? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now some, as I was looking at this, some commentators said, see, what Jesus was saying there about the swords was figurative. He wasn't actually saying for them to go get swords. Well, I would disagree with that for a few reasons. One is, when his disciples used the sword, what did Jesus say? Well, Luke says no more of this, but John's account, John 18, 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in the trash. No, he didn't say that. He said, put your sword where? Into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Why didn't he say, get rid of your swords? You don't need them. You misunderstood. That was figurative language. You have no need for a sword anymore. Get rid of them. He didn't say that. He said, put it in its sheath. This is not the time for swords. It also implies that the only purpose of a sword is to go to war with someone. But a sword can also be used to kill a wild, rabid dog. 
It could be used to fight off ferocious animals as these men were traveling on roads in the country and wilderness and wild animals are out there. It's a way to protect yourself. Jesus said, go get swords. If you don't have one, sell something to buy one. And he didn't say throw them away. So I do believe that the responsibility of Christians is to defend the weak against spiritual uh, dangers as well as physical dangers. We don't see Jesus um, making a whip when they spit in his face. We don't see Jesus looking with anger when they were punching him in the face, when they were whipping him. And I believe there is an instruction there for us as well. That doesn't mean you can't defend yourself. What it means is what tends to make us most angry is when we are insulted, when we are offended, when somebody doesn't do what we like or what we want or what we, we deserve. But when we look at our Savior, what made him angry was when his father's name was being dishonored, when the people were being blocked from the truth, and when the hardness of heart was leaving people who needed help, who needed to be taken care of and defended, left to themselves. Here's a man who had his hand withered. He's unable to feed himself, unable to work, probably starving, kept outside of the fellowship of God's people because he was unclean and unable to enter into the house of worship. And they would have kept him in that place for the sake of their own power. The hardness of their heart that nobody looked at that man with compassion or love made Jesus very angry. And it should make us angry as well. So may your anger move you to righteous behavior. One of those would be prayer. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. If you're angry by the false teacher and by the injustice and wickedness that you see in this world, then pray to the Lord that he would deal with that. And if it's in your power to rescue someone who is in danger... You have the way to call the authorities. And if there are no authorities around and you have the sword that Jesus gave you permission to own and you're within the law, then you have a right and a responsibility to protect the weak and defend the powerless. If someone came into this room right now with weapons and wanted to harm our women and children, Brothers, it would not be righteous to stand aside and say, I just want to be merciful like my Savior. No, it would be a righteous thing for every man in here to protect every woman and child, even if it meant that we receive bullets or punches or kicks or anything else. And it would be in our power and our responsibility to rush that man and bring him down and seek to prevent him from harming anyone else. And if it meant that he died in the process, then that is an unfortunate uh, consequence of his actions. We don't want to send sinners to hell um, quicker than they are scheduled to go. But I do believe that is imitating our Lord by defending the weak. Okay. Questions, comments, disagreements? I know of a 
um, there were times in the church in San Antonio when there would be women who were being um, beaten by their husbands. And it was the policy of the church for the men to go to that home and confront that man and say, you lay another hand on that woman, you will answer to us. We are her brothers, and you're not going to put a hand on our sister again. Call the authorities, and if it's in your power, protect the weak. Are there any questions that arise from any of that? good question. The question about public figures when they speak error, false teachers, blasphemy, um, they have a big name, they have a following, and you observe them from afar, and so you begin to rebuke them sharply. Uh, well, probably not them, because they're probably not going to read what you say. They probably don't care what you have to say. Um, some of these ministries, so-called, will block you if you say anything negative about their so-called ministry. But their followers may get upset when you do that, and they may ask the question, did you Matthew 18 them? Which basically means, did you first go to them in private, try to see if they would repent? Then did you take two or three others and see if they would repent? And then did you tell the, the, the church, did you tell the elders, did the whole church go after them and try to get them to repent? And if not, they will be cast out. Well, how can you do Matthew 18 on someone who's not a member of your local church? You can't. The whole idea of Matthew 18 is they have to be among us in order for us to be able to go to them and put them outside of us. But if they're never a part of us, then they can't be put outside of us. Someone who is in a public light is open to public criticism. You sign up for that when you become a public figure. And no, um, Jesus called uh, Herod a fox, and that was not a compliment. And I don't believe Jesus went to Herod in private and said, hey, Herod, do you think that maybe you could stop being so fox-like because I'm thinking about calling you a fox? Like, that's not what happened. He called him a fox because he was one. Um, he talked about the, the, the Pharisees publicly, openly. Again, the thing that must be taken into account is the context. In the context of the local church, you have members who sin. We go to them. We try to get them to repent. This is the local church. When we have preachers and teachers and politicians and anyone else, again, we have to stay within the bounds of uh, Scripture in terms of what we say and how we say. We have to honor those in authority, and yet we're still able to say what they are doing is wicked. Uh, it is a, a, 
it can get kind of tricky at times, but no, I do not believe that you need to go to these people in private, and if they're preaching a false gospel, then everyone who's listening to them needs to be warned. And if they'll listen to you, even better, but the chances of that happening are pretty slim. But you might be able to get their followers. Now again, if the interest and the desire is to condemn the teaching, then you go right on ahead. But if the interest is, there are some followers of this teacher that I want to reach, you may, dis- you may think, you know what, it would be wiser to go a different route. Because if you've ever talked to someone who is, who has strong affection for false teachers, you know that it has very little to do with what they teach. It's the relationship. They identify this preacher helped me through this hard time. I listened to this preacher growing up. It's more of a personal thing. You can say, but look, they preach this, they preach this, they preach this, and they will give you excuse after excuse after excuse. You're attacking him. You're, you're being judgmental. You're being critical. Well, that's not reasonable. Why? Because there's emotion attached. So if your interest is, I want to go after individual people who are in this movement, it would be wiser probably to not intentionally, you know, do a diatribe against the man uh, or the woman, but rather to address the person with the word and the teachings apart from the name of the personality, because they may not hear you because of their affection for the personality. Yeah, yeah. there is, um, again, the context of that is in the local church, because how are you going to bring a charge? It has to be people who witness that, right? So here's an elder who's, who is um, a thief, and you have suspicion that he's a thief, but you haven't seen him steal. But one person said, I think I saw him kind of put his hand to the offering box and put it in his pocket, but it's just one person. But if there are multiple witnesses of this, now you can bring that charge and, but there has to be that ability. But you're right. I, I do believe, however, what you said is right on, spot on, that there's a principle there. Those who persist in sin, those who persist in sin, who won't repent, who will not uh, surrender to the word, they are to be dealt with differently. And there's, there's that principle, right? Um, there was a time when Todd Friel used to say, uh, law to the proud, grace to the humble. And I think there's a, a good principle there. Those who persist, those who are proud, those who are loud, they need to be dealt with stronger than the, um, the humble and gentle. Yeah. And it's not going to make you any friends if we do it biblically. 
there are people who love rebuking false teachers. It's their, I was one of them. I, I, I had an entire, I mean, that, I was like, that's going to be my ministry. I'm going to be the rebuke the false teacher guy. And it was called discernment, but I didn't have any discernment that that was not wise. <laughs> that that's not what I am put on this earth to do is just go after every false teacher who's on the internet. That's not what God saved me to do. But I thought so. And there are circles where people love to do nothing but that. And that's all they do. And they praise each other. And it's an echo chamber. Um, But if you do it biblically, where there's genuine love and pity in your heart, you know these people are going to perish. You care about them. You care about their souls. You ultimately want them to be saved. um, And you start calling names. You're not going to make friends. This is going to make you very unpopular. Uh, But this is following Christ. Any other questions? It doesn't have to be about that topic. But. I didn't click on it, but you need to think of the TikTok reel. I think I saw a video by him this week where it said, you know, he wrote a pithy little statement, you know, clickbait. Right. He said, if you're not being persecuted, you're doing something wrong. Which I didn't click on it, but I'm assuming he's going to be saying things like, Yeah, so, because I know the mic sometimes is a problem for people. So what Chris said is, uh, Wretched Radio had a, a thumbnail video that says, if, you, if you're not being persecuted, you're doing something wrong as a Christian. And you can begin to wonder, what is Todd talking about? Um, and we could assume, because of what we know about the Bible, that... Um, Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, what? Will be persecuted. And that's a true thing to question. Am I being persecuted? Does anybody persecute me? If not, why not? They persecuted Jesus. They persecuted Peter. They persecuted Paul. They persecuted all the disciples. They didn't even have to be one of the twelve. The whole church in the book of Acts was scattered because of persecution. Christians throughout the world are being persecuted. You could click on Voice of the Martyrs and see believers being persecuted. You can look in church history, see believers being persecuted. You can look in the book of Revelation, the future, the past, the present. Christians are being persecuted. And if you look at your own life and you say, nobody ever persecutes me. Everybody likes me. Nobody says anything bad to me. Then you have to ask, am I a Christian? And if you conclude, yes, I am a Christian, then the question has to be, what commandment of Christ am I not obeying? Because Jesus said, if they malign the master of the house, what are they going to do to y'all as his disciples? So if we are speaking the truth, we're confronting error, we are bringing light into dark rooms, 
People are going to get angry. They're not going to like you when you call them a sinner. They don't want to hear that they're going to hell. They don't want to hear that their religion is wrong. They don't want to hear that they need to change something, that they're under judgment. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear, God knows my heart. He knows I'm doing the best I can. I'm going to make it. All roads lead to heaven and all the rest. So, yeah, that's a really good question for us all to ask. Tell people about Christ. Tell them about their sin. And watch the sword that Jesus promised come down. Because of me, a man's enemies will be those, what? Of his own household. Now, we pray that God would save whole households, but you get the point. Okay, well, let's, let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for anger. Thank you, Lord, for the emotion of anger. We're made in your image. You are angry with the wicked every day. You're always angry. But that's not all you are. Lord, help us to be angry with righteous anger, not because people offend us and step on our toes and don't speak nice to us, but because your name is being defamed, because the gospel is being distorted, because sinners are being blinded by the God of this world, because injustice is happening all around us, real injustice. Things that make you angry should make us angry. Little babies are being ripped from their mother's wombs. Wickedness is abounding. Lord, sin is rampant, and your name is being mocked all the day long, Lord, this should make us angry. We see these religious, these cults, these false teachers all around. We see the devastation it causes. We see whole households upset. Father, we should be angry. And most of all, we should be angry at the sin in our own hearts and our own lives, at the idolatry in our own hearts, the spiritual adultery in our own lives, that we don't love you as we ought. That should make us most angry. That is what should drive us to our knees in prayer. Lord, we should be most angry with the sin within us. Help us to be angry as you are. In Jesus' name, amen.